we, we, we should rap about things that we like, like, like food. That's right. You bugging ass Jeff, you know it. We're gonna be like the Partridge family, but with food. You like food, don't you? Got any uh, white bread? Yes. Oh, wait. I am the spaghetti. Duval, you're not the spaghetti. I am the spaghetti. Let go of the lid. Got spaghetti in here. Is this organic? Sure. Is it grass-fed? Yes. Cruelty-free? What's so special about the cheese maker? As the saying goes, you are what you eat. And I am freaking cheese. <laughs> Hey Danielle, how you going? I'm good, how are you? It's nice to be not the sickest person in the room for once. I know, I Normally I'm the one trudging in here with daycare flu, <laughs> trying to struggle through and, have... and smashing the red wine to, um, to, to make myself feel good. I have three straight days off work this mm. week and I've spent all of them sick. That's totally the way. Which is fabulous. We, we had a, a very nice um, aunt who gave us um, gave us a couple of nights in Noosa. Um, right. She won a prize and, and uh, Vanessa's parents took a couple of days and then we took a couple of days while they looked after our kids. So first kid-free day. And it just happened to be while Noosa Food and Wine was on. Oh. Which you would think, you know, you'd be out there charging. And yep. we got there and just went... Uh, we can do nothing, and that's exactly what we're going to do. Yep. So I think we went out. Uh, we went out once at night in three nights. <laughs> <laughs> and we, we went out to lunch one day, and that was really good. Yep. But yeah, I had all these big plans to go to go and check out a few mm-hmm. events, and and you know try and hook up with some people, and it just came to nothing. It's always like I think, um, particularly for chefs, we have this thing that the minute we book holidays mm. or the minute we start our holidays, we always end up getting sick. It's oh, like yeah. our body goes, okay, you're not yeah. going to work 12 hours or 14 hours today. Yeah. So I'm going to get all those germs happening and you're going to get sick. Yeah, <laughs> and that's, that's what happens. Not that I ever really took holidays when I were in the pubs, but yeah, you, even if you had two days off consecutively, you would invariably get sick. Yeah. Yep, so, 100%. I'm just days. glad that it's out of the way this week because next week I'm off to Sydney for three days to kind of farewell some favourite restaurants that are closing. Oh, okay. So Rockpool? Rockpool and Mark. Okay. Yeah, so I'm doing both of them. Rockpool was a late addition to the itinerary. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, being that announcement only happened this week, but yeah. As soon as Mark is, is announced... That a, is that a very... The, the Rockpool thing, is that a very sad thing in the industry? Um... I think there's mixed feelings about that one in the industry. For me, it's very sad. I did a stage there when I first started my apprenticeship. Yeah. And it was one of the best kitchens I've ever worked in. Not just in terms of quality of food, but also for the family feeling that was within that team. So this might be lifting the veil a little bit and you don't have to answer this. But, <laughs> like, obviously... Um, like a sporting team, a kitchen yep. is not just the superstar name above the door. Yep. Like, you need really good staff and that yeah. that owner or the head chef sets the culture. Mm-hmm. But then what happens when the head chef becomes like a businessman basically and opens 20 restaurants and is on MasterChef and you see them once every two months? Does it naturally drop off or is it the culture instilled keeps on? 
I think in the really good places, the culture is instilled so well, more ingrained. Yeah. Like it is so deep within that team that it stays regardless. It's um, I don't know. I guess oh God, <laughs> I need to watch what I say here. But it's it's those chefs that start their business and you know give blood, sweat, and tears, and they are hundred percent behind every project that they involve themselves in. Yeah. Um, and then their team catches that. It's it's that kind of drive is contagious, and their yeah. team catches that and passes it on. And I don't think that can ever be taken out. Okay, so it doesn't um, sort of wither away after time. It can do in some kitchens, but in in the particular kitchens where I've seen it continue, it's yeah. because that person that has become the face behind 20 other businesses still puts himself into each and every one of those 20 businesses yeah, okay. every single day. And they back every project of that they involve themselves in 100%. Because I don't think a lot of people would realise that if they went to Rockpool on a Thursday night, the chances of him touching the food are pretty minimal. Well, I, I don't think... In Neil Perry's instance, I don't think he really has a lot in the day-to-day general food running situation of a restaurant, yeah. of any of his restaurants. But I know well when I was working in those restaurants that I would see him multiple times every week. Okay. So he does... You know. so, so then it comes down to... Then you've actually got to have an operational chef who mm. is like your manager. Yeah. So then who writes the menu? Is it the operational chef or is it the owner head chef? I think this is where it comes into that developing that culture yeah. in kitchens. I think if you instill in your head chef the same values that you have and the same um, feelings towards food. I mean, every every chef has their own individual style twists, and flair yeah. and twists and whatever you want to call it. But an executive chef or a business owner will employ a chef that runs with the same... In the same style. In the same... Well, has the same drive as himself. And even that, like... And this is just something I don't know. Like, in a restaurant, how often does the head chef basically just sit in a room and write the menu? And how often is it like a staff thing and you just go, are we going to do this? Are we going to do that? Like, is it is that completely up to... The, the, sh- the style of the chef, like some chefs consultive and some chefs like this is my little baby and just here's the menu, this is what you will cook. I think more and more from an actual financial aspect that he- the head chef cannot be an office chef anymore. Okay. The executive chef, yes, that's, that is essentially their duty and most chefs that have gotten to that point of executive chef say, I just want to get back into the kitchen. Yeah. Because their life is behind a computer or behind a clipboard. Yeah. But from a financial point of view... A head chef needs to be hands-on these days. It's very rare that you'll have a head chef who just gets to do paperwork or hide behind a, a computer or a desk these days. Okay, so but if you're the pastry chef yep. at a restaurant or, I don't know, what, so you have your, your head chef who runs thing and your sous chef. Yep. So what's the next chef underneath that? You've got your chef to party. Okay, so would they have any input into the menu? It depends on the kitchen. Okay. Like, and this is the thing, like the brigade system in kitchens now is not so defined. Okay. Um, whereas before, So it's more like it might be a head chef and a team hmm. and the, the sous chef is basically who does, who, who the guy that's in charge when the head chef's taken yep. a night off. Yep, pretty much. Yep. I mean, I know at Bucci... All of our team members, from first-year apprentices to head chef, sous chef, whatever, we all have input 
into the way the menu is developed. Yeah. Which is fantastic. Not all kitchens are like that. No. Um, but we're quite a small team. With the larger teams, yeah, it's your head chef and your sous chef that kind of drive the the motivating factors behind any menu. But, um, Well, yeah. t- just to give you a quick sports analogy, the, the team that won the NBA title last year. Right. So you have, you know, your head coach and yep. your lead assistants and there's usually three of those guys and then you have a whole plethora of people underneath that so video analysts and and scouts and stuff like that and it was one of those guys that went to one of the lead assistant coaches and suggested a lineup change in the finals yep that completely changed and then that assistant coach went back to the head coach and said this guy's made this suggestion i think it's a great idea Mm -hmm. They brought everybody in, yep. worked it out, and, w- and rolled with it the next day and wiped the other team off the floor. Mm. But there would be, I think, in professional sports, a whole heap of teams where that guy just would have been told to take your idea and can it, basically. Def- and that thing, that sort of thing happens in kitchens all the time. Yeah. Ab- absolutely. Because there is still a lot of um, and is that ego. And is that why you see movement of chefs? Yeah. You know, basically a guy gets sick of being told... No, and so they move. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's really hard to stay focused and motivated when your job every day is to come in and peel carrots to yeah. within an inch of blah, blah, blah. This, this is why I would make a terrible chef. Because <laughs> I, I can't chop something evenly to save my life, and I have no desire to. Well, you know, but I, I don't know. I think. I was thinking about. I was chopping an onion the other day <laughs> for something, and I was like. I really should do a better job of that. And I went, well... And and I actually thought about it. I thought, is chopping this more evenly going to make a difference to the way it tastes? And sometimes it does. Yes. But in this particular instance, no, it wasn't going to make... Because I was going to cook the onion for a long long period of time. It's going to break down anyway. So I went, no, I'm not going to chop this better. (laughs) Throw it in the pot. That reminds me, I was watching um, Julie and Julia Oh, yes, I really like that movie. It's a great movie. And I watched the scene where she's the first course that she's doing at Le Cordon Bleu and she's chopping the onions with all these professional chefs and I laughed because it reminded me of when I first stepped into a professional kitchen. Yeah, right. <laughs> I haven't been to many cooking classes but um, I went to... Oh, I can't remember the guy's name. There was a, a French guy that uh, cooked in Australia... It cooked in Brisbane for a while. Has now gone back to Paris. And Bruno Le Bay. Yeah. Yeah. And Vanessa... And like we were pretty poor back then. She bought me a a cooking class for this Lovely. guy. And like I've turned up with my notepad and sitting up straight. But there was two tables and the other table was six rich middle aged women that weren't interested in learning to cook at all. Were only interested <laughs> in um how should we put it? Or were only interested in uh, you know, drinking lots of wine and having a really famous chef cook for them. Yeah. And just giggled and chatted. And, I, and like, he's got a very strong French accent. Yes. So I couldn't understand a freaking word. <laughs> and oh. I came home and I was shattered. I was, yeah. I was really shattered. Like, Vanessa had paid big bucks at this. Mm, I would have been disappointed too. Well, I ended up writing to Black Pearl and they... They refunded me. Yeah, right. Um, Still, Which would have been Emma. I think it would have been Emma. Yeah. Before I knew yeah. Emma, Emma as Emma. So, um, but yeah, it was just, I, I sort of like, I got an fired up to, yep. to learn something. Yeah. And I, I think I, I heard one word in 10. So, oh, I, I would have been disappointed with that too. 
But so, I'm a learner. I like to learn. So, you, speaking of you're doing this cookbook club. Yes. So, is that a good way for, if you're not a head chef, is that a good way for you to do little things outside the kitchen that's your main employment mm. to keep the creative sort of buzz going? Yeah, I mean... Uh, it depends what kind of chef you are. So I was having this conversation with one of my apprentices the other day. Mm. And there's the kind of chefs that live, breathe, eat, sleep, drink. Everything is about food for them. They wake up and they think about what they're going to cook that day and how they're going to do it and what they're going to do next. And I where, think like that. Yeah, and where <laughs> they're going to learn from. And then there's the type of chefs that just get up and they stumble into the kitchen and they do what needs to be done and done. then they go home. Yeah. And so I said to this apprentice, what kind of chef are you going to be? Because um, we've had a few issues <laughs> and with that particular apprentice, with that particular or, or apprentices, apprentices generally. Uh, apprentices in general, because I think I'm, um, the industry has kind of been glamorized a little bit, and so yeah. they come in thinking they're just gonna jump straight in there mm. and be. Don't realize they've got to learn yeah. all the skills first. Um, and so I said to him, "You need to read books. You need to go to cooking classes. You need on one of your days off, as tired as you may be, maybe you need to go to another restaurant and ask if you can do." A day's work um, it's kind of I don't know you've got to motivate yourself to learn in this industry because it's very easy to stagnate so for me cookbooks are a big thing yeah. and I think for um, anyone that's wanting to develop their cooking skills then yeah jumping into a cookbook I remember I once did the um, Adriano Zumbo cook for the first book he released yeah. from start to finish wow. every single recipe see I'm um... I'm the same, but completely opposite. So <laughs> I love reading cookbooks and um, like all my cookbooks that I've got, except my um, my Thai one, which scares the hell out of me. <laughs> um, I've, re- I've read probably like three or four times each. Mm. And the other one is The Cook's Companion, which I basically yes. use as a reference yep. guide and I don't really read it through. Yep. But all the other ones I've read through and I've read every recipe mm. and stuff like that. I very rarely do sit down and do a recipe, yep. but I sort of absorb the knowledge, absorb the ideas, and and I might take a little bit of that, Yep. and the next time I try and cook something that's like that, I'll try and pull a bit of that yep. into it, and, and occasionally you'll pull something out and do it, especially if you're having someone around for dinner or something, But and I, that's why I read them again and again, mm-hmm. because as you sort of learn a little bit more, you go back and you look at something a little bit different. Oh, okay, I'll try that now. So, um, yeah, but I find, and again, probably because I'm so time poor with the kids, I struggle to sit down and get an ingredient list and pull it all together for it, like to do a recipe. Does does that make sense? Don't get me wrong. I should have finished that statement by saying, and I will never cook from a cookbook like that again. (laughs) Except for this thing that you're going to do, because I want to get to that. But in saying that, I mean, I very rarely cook from a recipe. I hate it, in fact. I hate weighing, I hate measuring, which is why pastry has never been my forte. I'm more of a throw it in the pot, let's taste it and see what's happening. Absolutely. Um, So... One of the disciplines that I actually need to force myself to learn is following more recipes. Yeah. So this is kind of... The cookbook club is kind of a way of me doing that. So for those that, that didn't listen to last week, um, Scrumptious Street's doing a cookbook club. And the idea is that, just like any book club, mm. you come, you talk about a book, which just happens to be a cookbook, and then you're going to do, what, three? Well, the first one um, of 
Bat, which is Best Kitchen Basics by Mark Best. We're actually doing nine dishes out of that. Wow. Um, this book, I, I absolutely love it. For anyone who's looking to buy their first cookbook or buy a cookbook that's quite refreshing and not overwhelming, this book is the way to go. I had a look at this last week and my view was it is a cookbook that I could enjoy. Mm-hmm. But I could also give to my flatmate, who's a very, I must follow every recipe down to the absolute yeah. nth degree. Yep. But it's not going to freak him out. He's not going to open it a little bit like I open yep. um, that tie one and go, ah! Yes. Yeah. But, but he could open any of these recipes and feel quite confident that he could follow the steps and follow it through. Yep. It's very, very clear. Mm. It, a lot of it's quite simple. Yep. But it also is interesting enough that someone like me would want to cook from it. Yeah, I mean, I was quite surprised when I first opened it. Um, I just, I, I didn't know what to expect, actually, because Mark's first book was n- like no cookbook I had ever opened before. There were actually no recipe lists. You had to read the recipe through to pull the ingredients oh, out. Oh, wow. The photography Jeez, was that, beautiful. That would drive some people insane. Yeah, definitely. And I loved it. I loved it for that very fact that some people would just not be able to deal with that. So this book, when I opened it, I was like, wow, this is the complete opposite. And yeah, there's some really simple recipes. Um... There's some more complex recipes, but I don't know. Did you talk about the way the book was structured last week? Mm-mm. So essentially, they are. It's listed in alphabetical order by ingredients, and there's three recipes for each ingredient of varying difficulty. And um, so essentially, you could use this cookbook simply by putting all of the ingredients in a hat, yeah, and pulling them out to go. This is what I'm going to cook today. And great for if you're a little bit like me and you're trying to follow seasons. Yeah. So, you know, say spring and asparagus comes on. Yep. Um, which I have an endless fight with my wife because she goes, because I'll say to her, I, I am one of those people. I'll, I'll get up in the morning, I'll have breakfast, and I'll immediately think about what I'm going to have for lunch. <laughs> or me too. we'll be having breakfast, and I'll go, what do you want for dinner? And Vanessa will look at me, I haven't even finished my coffee. Why are you asking me about dinner? <laughs> but And then she'll say, oh, I feel like crepes with asparagus. And I'm like... It's winter. Yep. The asparagus is going to come from South America. It's going to mm. taste like crap. Yep. Yep. You're not getting asparagus no. or grapes. Um, but, the, you know, that's a great one for if you've got a heap of potatoes yep. or you've got a heap of something. And that's yeah. why I like the Cook's Companion because yes. you've got something, you go to that section and invariably you'll find something to cook. Yep. Yeah. This has fast become my favourite cookbook at the moment um, for the simple fact that I can open it up and most of the recipes have four or five ingredients mm. and that's about it um, yeah I just and I like that um, he it kind of still has his really dry sense of humour so there's a recipe in here which is stir fried potato oh. and um, he kind of goes on to say you could do this on a mandolin but that's not really going to improve your knife skills is it no <laughs> And I just thought that, and that was like a little side note at the bottom of the recipe. And I thought, I can just picture him standing behind an apprentice in his kitchen being, well, we could do it the easy way. But but you're not going to learn anything. It's not really going to help you out in the long run. My absolutely favourite cookbook is uh, um, Food to Drink To. Have you ever seen that one? No, I have not. I have heard of it, but it has not been in my my list. I'll bring it for you next week. I'll lend it to you. It um, 
it, it, it is absolutely written like they're sitting around their kitchen, at least one bottle, probably two in, <laughs> and th- they lived together in in London. Mm-hmm. I think when they were sort of um, sommeliers, sort of working in restaurants yep. and and. It's just got this vibe to it that's not commercial at all. It's like you absolutely feel like um, this is just guys shooting the shit. It's got nothing in it that sort of... There's no shtick to it, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. And the recipes are really well written. Mm -hmm. And obviously everything has been something that they've cooked for themselves or for friends multiple, multiple times. I I don't think anything was designed just... For the cookbook, yeah, if that makes sense. Yep, yep. And that's what I wanted to know. Like, obviously, this it's not going to happen with this one, but can you tell by looking at a cookbook sometimes that this is being that the recipe a, has been designed just so that they can get a cookbook out? Yep. Not necessarily, you know, they might have cooked it a few times to test it, but it's not something that they cook all the time in a restaurant or at home. Mm-hmm. Or you, you can yeah, tell straight definitely. away. Definitely, you can see the the filler recipes that come through um, because they don't quite fit into what the rest of the book. Um, they they're kind of like those half page recipes, and then there's this big beautiful photo of something that's totally unrelated. Art design um, sort of yeah. Saves the day. So you can you can see that this was like oh we've got a blank page let's put something on there. Mm. Um, yeah, you can definitely tell. But and, and in terms of sometimes I've got come across cookbooks that you can clearly tell haven't even been recipe tested. Well, <laughs> Ben was talking about doing a podcast with uh, Made in Melbourne where they would go through and just basically destroy cookbooks. Yep. And say, you know, obviously no one's sat down and cooked this because mm. if you did this and then did this, then it's just not going to work. Yes. Um, and the thing is, if yeah. you're if you're a home punter, because um, again going back to to my to my flatmate, um, when he wasn't living with us, when he he used to come and stay and help us out with the kids, sort yep. of one or two nights a week, and he'd stay over and he would cook, and I would sort of like he would be the apprentice, and I would sort of just talk him through, you know, like something really easy, like a roast chicken or mm. a lasagna. And he would write in in his little notebook and he had his little cookbook that he was writing. But I would just go, okay, well, you do this and then you do this. And he's like, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. In between those two steps, what about these? How do you get from this point to this point? And yeah. I didn't even think about it, but, you know. It's, it's, it's very common. Um, and I think, actually, Julie was here at that point when we went to the launch of Colin Fassinger's book, Four Kitchens. And he admitted that he had forgotten to scale down a recipe. So there's a recipe in his book that says it serves eight, but it's actually for 56 portions. <laughs> and I would, I can't remember what recipe it was, but I want to be there when someone cooks that, that recipe for the hilarious. first time. And it's just cooking this massive amount of whatever it was. I can't remember what recipe it was. Maybe we should um, get on Twitter and find out if Colin Maybe can tell us. Four kitchens. Yep. I remember working at Rosalie Butcher before I started the, this job that I've got now, and a lady came in and bought a whole pie fillet. You know, which mm-hmm. is not cheap. No. And so I took the sinew off and tied it up for her, 
cut the tail off and wrapped it all up. And I was just about handing it to her and I said, how long are you going to cook this for? And she's like, oh, no. <laughs> and I was like, okay, so what sort of oven have you got? And I'm like, have you got a meat thermometer? Have you got a thermometer to like help me out here? Because I'm thinking I'm selling you 150 bucks worth yeah. of meat. Because this is retail butcher prices. And you're not exactly filling me with confidence that you're going to take this home and do it justice. And I feel it is, like, I don't like cooking, I feel it. I find it a little bit like pork loin. It's just so touchy. Yeah. You know, too much, too little. Mm -hmm. There's no fat, there's no... um, There's far better cuts that you could enjoy. Well, uh, yes, there is. And there's. (laughs) I I do have one recipe, which I'll get back to, which I think is freaking awesome, which is a Bruno Le Bear recipe, actually. Um... But I was just like, you know, a, if I was you, I'd be, you know, cook, roast a whole rib fillet that's got lots of fat mm. in it. It's a little bit more forgiving. And if you cook it for two minutes too long, it's not going to make any difference. Yeah. So anyway, I was like, okay, we'll cook it for this long. The end bits are going to be well done. And as you move towards the middle, they're going to be rarer and it, it should be cool. But I was just thinking, if she'd taken that home and cooked it for 15 minutes too long and served it and it was like boot rubber, she would have... Never gone back to that butcher again because no she totally would have blamed the butcher. Yeah. Or, but the flip side is, if you cook that recipe and you screw it up, you're just going to think, well, I, I just don't. I'm just not good enough cook. Mm. You know. Yeah. You, you would never blame the recipe. You would say, well, obviously yep. I'm not good enough to cook this recipe. I won't cook it again. Yep. You'd never question on whether the person writing the recipe had actually tested it or knew what they were talking about or was hung over that day and forgot a step that yeah. makes a massive difference to the it's uh we've done quite a few book launches here at scrumptious reads and for the most part the books have been amazing and there's mm. certain authors that if they come back and release another book i jump at the opportunity to do their launch yeah but there have been times where i really have felt that i wanted to tweak certain recipes but i can't because I, I, it's I, not my recipe to tweak and i'm representing it as straight from the book but it does make me think was this the one you skipped over (laughs) and i do wonder whether the books that we're talking about that have a lot more filler aren't necessarily the ones that julie sells too well yeah (laughs) because they're probably not the ones that are out there about profit margin yeah so yeah hmm um, it, the cookbook trade is very interesting. I think since you've been able to self-publish so easily now, yeah. um, people are jumping on board without realizing just how much work goes into a good cookbook. A good cookbook. Look, my, my definitely in my top five cookbooks. That's another one we should do, Julie. Is five cookbooks you could take with you if you. We, we should um we should get a little panel together for that one. That'd be interesting. But mm-hmm. my first Naked Chef, Jamie Oliver cookbook, yep. like it is really well written. There's a lot of recipes, I reckon, there's a lot of recipes that I cannot fail with. I have a lot of favourite recipes from his books, but the way his books are structured drives me mental. Really? Like, I don't know whether it's my little chef OCD coming out mm-hmm. or what, but the font that he uses <laughs> no. the, where the rest of where the ingredients are located on the page and the way that they're put together wow. oh my gosh my head just goes into a spoon spin i love his books what? and i think they're great but i can't i can't cook for them <laughs> the, the first two i've got are so spattered with 
fat and stock yep. and everything. Like when I was, so I moved to Brisbane, and I always cooked at home because Mum had this thing where you either cooked or you washed up, and we, for for a long time it was just me and Mum all through primary school. So. She cooked, I washed up. So I washed up every day for a long time. Yep. And so when she said, well, you can cook, I went, sweet. <laughs> no I will never wash up, up again. <laughs> <laughs> which, which for mum was fine because she was like, sweet, I never have to cook again. <laughs> um, but I cooked a lot of, um, you know, packet pasta meals mm-hmm. and, and stuff like that because I didn't really know any different. And then when I came to Brisbane... It, it must have been that show on TV that sort of started to push me back to cooking from raw ingredients more yep. than, you know, just cooking from bottles and, and things like that. Yeah. Because um, I remember there was sort of like six or seven recipes from that first book that I must have got for Christmas or something that I just did all the time. Yep. The, the chocolate pots, I think, is in book two. Mm-hmm. And like every time I had someone around, that was my go-to dessert with yep. the, the egg yolks and the and it was you know so thick and rich yeah. but just it, i never served it to anyone and had them say oh well, this is pretty crap yeah yeah you, you know it was mm-hmm. it was foolproof yes. so i think that's and because i had success with those that's why i kept going back to them mm-hmm. and cooking sort of everything in the thing that's where i learned to cook risotto you know yep. I, I never would have tried risotto if i hadn't have had success with the stuff that was more accessible to me in those books yeah they definitely are, are, are very appealing, and I do love the recipes in them. But I think it's just my my little chef OCD is like oh, this I is think, not how you structure. I think to, it'd be a little bit like a um, it'd be a little bit like a, a novelist reading, you know, the Famous Five or something like that. Yeah, and you're like, okay, well, it's a book. There's mm-hmm. plot structure and there's plot elements, but you know, yep. it's very simple. And it's simple to read. And like all the plot elements are good and the yeah. structure is good, but it is so dumbed down from my viewpoint mm. that, you know, it's it's sort of like, well, it's okay, but it's a kid's book. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we decided. <laughs> the Naked Chef is like the ch- children's book of the, the cookbook world. That's an interesting analogy. I've never thought of it that way. <laughs> But is that because Jamie himself makes himself so accessible mm. to so many different people? Like, I actually don't think that the recipes in his book are all that simple at times. You know, they do involve you having to read the recipe. It's not mm. like you can just look at the list of ingredients no. and go, I know what it's to do. It's not that bloody three ingredients. Yeah. Book. So I think the fact that he's put himself out there as so accessible to so many different types of people yeah. actually encourages people to think of his books as a beginner's book. Which is great because then they go and try something that they think is a beginner's recipe where it's probably a little bit more difficult than what they think. It still surprises me. Like there's, like, I work for a, a butcher supply company. Like we work in food. Yep. Now not everyone who works there has got to be into food, obviously. Right. Um, but like I was having a chat to the, the office ladies the other day. I was talking about risotto. None of them had cooked a risotto. Mm. I was like, are you, are you serious? Like, how can you... Like, it's not like risotto rice is hard to find now. You can find... You, you can even find good risotto yep. rice pretty easily. And you don't need to do, like, you know, onion, carrot, risotto rice, a bit of 
bacon and some mushrooms and, and some stock and you'll get a decent risotto. It's kind of like it's that just that point too far risotto. I, I remember the first time I cooked a risotto successfully at home. Um, the fir- it's actually the first cookbook I was ever given by someone, which was like a serious cookbook, mm. was Neil Perry, The Food I Love. And okay. it's a beautiful book. But I cooked my first risotto out of that book. Yep. And I felt like I had achieved this massive goal because everyone talks about risotto being so difficult. But it's not. <sighs> it's not difficult, but I'm always... Uh, and this is the difference, you know, that difference between a, a cook, a good cook and a chef. Yeah. I'm always striving for... I had a risotto for my 18th birthday somewhere on Park Road. Yep. Don't can't remember where I went. And it was just that perfect consistency where, like, if you took out a, a ruler yep. and measured it, it would probably slowly be spreading across the plate. <laughs> but it wasn't... It wasn't liquid enough that you could see it moving yes do, do you know what I mean like it was the lava yes the lava look. and it was amazing now I get that maybe one in seven or eight tries yeah yeah um I've had some pretty bad risottos ha- from professional kitchens well, in my time I, and I've never had anyone come to my house and say they don't like my risotto because yep. I, I use shitloads of butter and shitloads of parmesan cheese you can't go wrong and I, I've had some people scream when they wandered through the kitchen and I'm, you know, throwing a chunk of butter this big, I'm not going to tell you how much it is, people, you can guess, into the risotto and then, like, grating half a block of parmesan cheese I was going to say, is that all? <laughs> my, my wife's a cancer researcher. She kills. She... Uh, yep, okay. Okay. You save that kind of really, really buttery food for when you go out to eat. Oh, when I'm, cook- <laughs> when I'm cooking for myself. So I was telling them about Sean's because Sean has completely changed the way I've made potatoes. Excellent. I have uh, since uh, since he showed me every bit of potato, I, mashed potato I've cooked has been pushed through a a, a um, drum sieve. sieve. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, just a normal. Yeah. Yeah. Is that what you call a drum sieve? Just the sort of. Oh, half... we call the drum sieves the the big ones that are kind yeah. of stretched tight like a drum. Oh, but yeah, right. normal. yeah. I've just got a little home, home yep. sieve, but you know. Cook the potato till it's nice and soft, push it through, yep. and then fold the butter through. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's fantastic. Yep. I think it's amazing. I have not been game enough to, while well, my wife is in the room, to go the 50-50 potato <laughs> to butter ratio, I have to say. I'm sort of sticking with my normal butter ratio. But it definitely has a, a much better texture. Oh, and they're the little things that you get from looking through cookbooks that might be slightly, you know, more than what you've looked through before. Yeah. And that's the whole point of the cookbook club to bring mm. it back is we're going to be talking about the recipes and the techniques that might be something you won't try at home. But if we can put it on the table in front of you, you taste it. And then you've got the book at home, you go, all right, well, I'll give it a go. And you know what you're aiming for as well. But also, if you're looking at the book and you go, you read through the recipe, you taste the dish, I'm trying to learn to code at the moment. And what I'm struggling with is... um, So I sort of reverse engineer things when I try and work something out. So a lot of the times I'll taste the end product, I'll look at a recipe, and then I'll try and bring it back to to the middle. So I'll look at a recipe and I'll try the recipe and I'll go, okay, that doesn't taste how it tasted when I tasted it. Why doesn't it? So I'll try and, you know, bring it slowly together. Yep. 
and where I'm struggling with coding at the moment, I'm just I don't know enough of the basics to under, to look at the, the like I look at the the end product and it's still like looking at a recipe in a completely different language. Yeah. Yeah. So I think once I have enough of the base knowledge, yep. now the beauty of this this cookbook club is you can look at the recipe, you can taste the thing, but then you've got an expert to talk to to say, "Hey, I don't understand I don't understand this bit. Yep. How do you how do you make this stock yep. into this sauce? Yeah. And that's the beauty of I think having a cookbook club. Yes. And you can come once a month or you can come once a year or um, whatever it may be, but you can come to the books that only interest you, but mm. it's all building a skill base. I love teaching people how to cook because I think it's kind of empowering you to take control of what you feed yourself. That's right. Um, so, you know, this Julie and I have been throwing this idea around for <laughs> two or three years maybe, mm. and we've finally just gone, right, let's do it and come up with a format that's really simple, um, but it, I think it will work really well. And... Um, I'm really excited. And now that you've sort of mentioned like the visual aid behind cooking, there's another book that I want to cover straight away, Julie. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's by one of um, the world's most, what would be called complicated chefs, I guess, but it's his um, like staff meal or family meal cookbook from um, El Bulli. But it's like for a beginner, it's amazing. It's got photographs. And time plans and uh, ingredient lists. It's the most amazing book, format-wise, that I've ever come across. I love it. So I think that'll probably be on the agenda at some point. Now, do you think that book was written for the general public, or do you think it was written for chefs? Um, no. I. If you read about El Bulli, everything was meticulously... Like, records were meticulously kept. Okay. So every recipe ever cooked in that kitchen. And it's just a byproduct of that (laughs) record-keeping procedure is that he documented family meals or staff meals. Yeah. And so... They're there. They're there. Put them together in a book. Um, Yes, that's not how I cook. (laughs) No, neither do I. (laughs) In fact, um, it's kind of the bane of Sean's existence sometimes when we're writing menus and I'll come up with this dish, but I've got no idea how I got to the end result because I don't write anything down. Well, (laughs) pizza's the classic one. Like The the kids love pizza. Yep. So I cook it all the time. I cook it from scratch. You know, I make my own bases. I've got a sourdough starter. I make sourdough bases. Um and some nights you get pizza even out of my crappy little oven that are just sublime yep and Vanessa will go oh that's awesome make them like that again mm-hmm. yeah no I'm, I'm the same I have no idea why this particular yep. pizza was any different to the one I made last week because I don't really do it that differently no but again I get the sourdough starter I just whack a bit in a bowl whack some flour in yeah and let it sit there. Yep. I don't measure anything. But see, this is this is the thing about cooking as well, is unless you're in a professional kitchen where generally the temperature's pretty consistent, the ingredients are coming from the same supplier, yep. um, <clears throat> you know, all of that your recipes are always gonna be slightly different. Because Absolutely. there's always slight variations, particularly with baking. Yeah. You know, flour reacts differently when it's more humid, when yeah. it, you know the age of it, like if you're like me and admittedly <laughs> Shirley was shocked at how much plain flour I go through because um, <laughs> I'll buy it in 10 kilo bags. And they're like, don't, don't you get weevils? I'm like, yeah, 10 kilo bag doesn't last long enough in my place to get weevils. Yep. But um, 
when I was making cheese, when I was hand milking the cows, and again, I'm making soft cheese, and you know, I'm following a recipe and I'm doing what it is, but some days you're busy and you don't turn the cheese, yep. and the, and some days the fridge get open six times yep. instead of once. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it all makes a massive difference yeah. to the way. And I have made a camembert that is the best camembert I've ever eaten. And I even took it to a professional cheesemaker um, who'd just come back from winning a whole heap of awards at the Sydney show. Yep. Hit him up on Twitter, said, do you mind cha- tasting my cheese? Took him a quarter of this camembert I made. It just happened that, that, that this particular one was the one when I asked him. to, And he's like, taste it. Oh, that's really good. Folded it up put it in his esky and gave me a whole thing of his cheese, <laughs> took my cheese home. Um, but I've never made one like that since. Cheese is hard. I used to make cheese all the time and I just don't have the time to no. do it now. But, yeah, unless you are measuring pH and, you know, well, and that's all the other thing. Sort of I'm thing. milking one cow. Yeah. And, you know, so every week the grass... Yeah. The like the fodder, the, everything changes yep. to them. Like if you're milking thirty cows, it evens out a little bit. Yep. You know, if you're getting milk from a thousand different cows, then it definitely evens out a bit. You know, it's not really going to change. Yeah. Like it'll change over a whole like from summer to winter, but it's not going to change from week to week. No. Or from you know one cheese to the next cheese. But I definitely noticed even with feta, which was the cheese that I got pretty good at, that I yep. could sort of make unconsciously. I could make a good feta yep. and we always had three or four kilos of it sitting in the fridge Yeah, that if I had a batch made today and a batch made two weeks later, I could taste the difference yes. in, in the cheese. Yep. So. Cheese making is fascinating art. Yeah. Really I, I would like to get much better at it. Yeah. Um, unfortunately with the twins coming and, and holy God, I haven't milked for a long time, Yeah, but it, it takes time as well, and it does actually take commitment. I made a blue once, and I couldn't believe how much I actually had to look after that baby. Yeah, you've got to really... I've made some... I've had a heap of go at blues with not much success, mostly yeah. go on to pizza. Um, I read a really good book about cheese making that basically said, look, have a go at everything, because unless you really, really, really stuff it up, you can put it on a pizza. Yes. I used to say <laughs> yeah. that to people in my you, cheese classes. You just melt it. You know, you melt it, it's going to taste yep. okay. Yeah. Um, and that's right. It, it pretty much... I, I would like to make mozzarella. I've not had great success. Oh, my gosh. There's a whole podcast in itself. You, you can make good yeah. mozzarella? Yeah. How do you find... Because I find you've got to have it really hot. Yeah, so... And even with thick gloves, I struggle with the heat. So you buy the little cotton gloves that you would use under boxing mitts or something like that, and then you put two layers of plastic, like the thin latex plastic gloves. Yeah. So you still can feel the cheese Cheese. enough to get a good stretch, but you're not got searingly hot. Hot thing. Okay. Yeah. Um... Well, maybe you'll have to come down to Lantana Land when I'm when I've got a good batch of milk and because and that's the other thing it's so dependent on the milk mozzarella as to the stretch and all that sort of thing. And I have heard that fresh, if you get good fresh unpasteurized cow's milk, you can make as good mozzarella as buffalo. Yeah, definitely. Um, And I buy, you know, three or four balls of that buffalo mozzarella a week. It's an expensive habit. Uh, Yes. (laughs) Yeah. But it's just there's, there's just nothing like fresh mozzarella. No, it's amazing. Um, and I can remember when Rosalie Deli first got it, 
and they were selling it for like three bucks a ball when they first got it because they weren't sure whether they yeah, right. they, they wanted to. And so I was having toasted cheese sandwiches with half a ball of wow. fresh mozzarella on it. And then they sort of figured out that, yes, it was going to be popular yeah. and they put it up to the proper price and I was like, I can't afford it anymore. $3 a ball. Wow. Mm. No, I, I got quite creative with my mozzarella. I used to do like infused waters and brines and things like oh, that. Okay. And so we yeah. had like basil infused and I'd kind of play around and I'd stretch the skins out and I'd put salted caramel and mascarpone inside. Oh, yeah. So you're having like little dessert mozzarella balls and... Um, Look, I, would I just, was cheese obsessed for a very, very, very long time. I would just be happy to be able to go, I've got 20 litres of milk. I'm going to make a batch of mozzarella. Let's do it. So have you ever made the, um, so like the grating mozzarella? No. 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 I'm guessing, because I used to make a lot of ricotta salata, yeah. which was the firm aged ricotta. Okay. So I'm, I'm guessing it would be the same kind of process. Okay. Yeah. Um, I used to do a smoked fresh mozzarella because yep. I had a little smoking gun that I used to use. Um, but no, never for a grated... Because the only problem with the, the fresh mozzarella is that it's got a very short shelf life. Yeah. And yep. But I, I wonder, like, because Cheese Slices is just one of those shows I loved. Yeah. Um, and, like, you see the, you know, the, the, the more hard mozzarella that they've got hanging in the cellar. Yeah. And I would imagine that the the better made ones of those would be, well, I guess it's all just almost as good. Temperature and salt. Yeah, really? yeah. Maybe it's a little bit more salt yeah. and, and drying it out from yeah. the fresh, from I the mean, fresh there's, one. <laughs> there's a recipe in the Best Kitchen Basics book, and now I'm starting to sound like a broken record, but it's for duck ham. Oh, okay. And it's you do it at home, and it's perfectly safe. Now most people would go, hang on can't cure your own meats at home what are oh, you talking about yes well we do it but most people would freak out at it but yeah. this is a reliable recipe and he's put it out there and there's no word of ph testing or anything like no. this and it's it's cool you know like i'm guessing you know you could do the same thing with your fresh mozzarella really we, s- we sell a lot of quicker at work yeah uh, there's a lot of people that make their own bacon and ham, mm. uh, ham less so yeah um but like brew Queensland's not very good for trying prosciutto, really. No. It's, um, a, it's a very hefty investment for something that could go quite wrong. Yeah, you, you, can't, <laughs> you can't make... You're not going to make a peasant's prosciutto and hang it on your deck. Mm-mm. It's just too... It's no. too humid, much to my disappointment. Yeah. But I, I used to do um, dry-cured cold-smoked bacon all the time, mm-hmm. and then I'd just take it to one of my customers and use their slicer. Oh, that's what I wanted to get to quickly before we go. So we were talking before the show about thermomixes and kitchen gear. Yep. So, and like, my kitchen is a nightmare. It's the worst kitchen of a decent cook in Brisbane. It's just terrible. (laughs) In what way? Uh, I have an electric oven. One element is falling through the oven. One element only works on high. One element only works on low. One element works properly. The oven door doesn't close properly. Yep. Uh, the kitchen's smaller than this table. I'm not exaggerating. Right. Um, what else is not too great about it? Uh, I suppose other than that, and the fridge is sort of not in the kitchen. That's another real sort of pain in the ass. 
It's just not. It's just not a good kitchen. It's right. Not, it's small. You can only have one person in it. Okay. So it's hard to cook with someone, and the stove's just a nightmare. So like if if like if the kitchen godmother came and visited me and said, "You can have whatever gadgets you wanted." Mm-hmm. The first thing I would say is, "I want a, a decent oven. Yes. That, that's consistent and works." And yep. I would like gas, please. That mm. would be lovely. Oh, no, 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 no. No induction. Induction really? these days, yes. Is yes, it, is, yes, is, yes, is yes, it, yes, yes, yes. It's worth the... Yeah, I know it's a very primal thing to cook on a flame. Like, I understand that. But induction has, particularly if you're into cheese making and stuff like that, has so much more accuracy. Uh, more control. More control, same sort of intense heat. Um, you can get it as low as 50 degrees. That That, that is something that I yeah. would like because um, I like those slow infused stocks. Mm-hmm. You know, where yep. you just basically put it on and just let it steep away. Yeah. That, that is really cool. Um, I have my broken element that only goes very slow <laughs> works really well for that, I have to say. So it's, it's, it's not all bad. Your, your needs. But yeah, no, induction. And particularly in Queensland, because it doesn't give off any ambient heat. Uh, yeah, like yeah, it, it's. Be- I love cooking on induction. It's okay. beautiful. Yeah. Well, so yeah, get I trust, okay, so, get induction. So then if, I, if, if the next thing that I was going to say is... How useful do you find um, the mixers? Like, if you were going to have a, a mixer or a thermomix, yep. what would you go for first? Oh, I love my thermomix. Like, I really do. But unless you're going to use it the way it's intended to be used, which is with the heat setting and the high-powered blitzing and all that sort of thing, every day. Yeah. And <laughs> there are thermomix ladies out there that I know that are going to shoot me, but... Just go with so, uh, a good I've, quality kitchen machine. Well, I've got a $40 glass bowl mixer. Yeah. Right. That's, again, it works for me because it's small. Yep. So I can't have anything left out on a bench space. Yeah. I don't have much cupboard space, so it's hard to put things yep. away. This little glass bowl mixer, if I'm making breadcrumbs or yep. I'm blitzing some biscuits or whatever, it works fine. It's yeah. a really powerful little motor. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's smashless things. I mean, I guess that's where thermomixes are really good because they are an all-in-one. Yeah. Like, you can just have that one piece of equipment and it does billions of other jobs. Yeah. I've got a stove for cooking things. Well, so. and this like is Like, really, thing. how hard is it to tip from a mixing bowl into a, yeah. into a pot? Yeah. That, that's what I don't understand. Like, they're like, oh, it's got a heating element. It's like, I've got a stove right here. Well, I guess, like, the first time I got... The first time I used my... Thermomix, where I truly realised the full potential. I had. <laughs> you yeah. sound like a Star Wars. Movie. I know. Gosh, um, I had this glut of pumpkins, like yeah. just huge amount of pumpkins, um, and I was. I kind of just had this really beautiful one. It was perfect in every way. The skin was still nice and supple, and um, so I just chopped the whole thing up, seeds and all, and put it all in there. Skin, everything, raw, onion, garlic, bit of stock cooked it down had the most delightful pumpkin soup i've ever had and i didn't have to do anything like that to me i was like hmm this has its benefits okay so but you you've got a stick blender no i don't i hate stick blenders oh really i hate them with passion because they just splatter stuff everywhere and if you don't get the right angle that is one of of my most favorite things mayonnaise I have Hollandaise. a Kenwood Chef as well, which I love. Yeah. So that's my like mixing bowl. It does my doughs. Yeah, but it's yeah, okay. also so, the one where like, you can sit the food processor and the blender on top. All ah, right. And that's so a beautiful piece that, of That's why I've um, been interested in the, um, the mixers because yep. so the dough hook particularly, but also like 
you know, if you're making a cake or you're making mm-hmm. biscuits and you can just throw all the stuff in yeah. and, you, and you press a button and it mixes while you go over and prep something else rather than having to... Like, I can understand, I can see the utility in that yeah. a lot more than a Thermomix. If you do a lot of baking... I don't do a lot of baking. I do a lot of... <laughs> but I you do, do a lot of dough work. I do a lot of dough work, yeah. yeah. So that's... And I'm <laughs> saying that there is a dough function on the Thermomix which produces beautiful doughs. Yeah. But for your needs, it's only a two-litre bowl. Yeah. So it's not going to produce mass amounts of... I have of... seven people living in my Well, house. this is the thing. So, yeah, I mean, my, my Kenwood chef, and I will stand by a Kenwood because my grandma had one and it's still going, I think. I don't know whether yep. she still owns it, but I'm pretty sure it's still going wherever it is. Um, they just last an eternity. Yeah. And, yeah, so you get your dough hook. You can do your cakes. You can do your bits and pieces. Well, the other thing with the, the Kenwood and the... Um, what's the other brand that's pretty popular? Uh, KitchenAid. KitchenAid. Gosh, who's going to sponsor us? <laughs> uh, I've been... I have been... I tell you, I've been angling on Twitter and Facebook and, and on the podcast for a KitchenAid sponsorship since day one. Sally just laughs at me. She's like, they're not going to sponsor you. Kenwood's better. Look, I'll take, I'll take either... Look, because both of them have, and I actually think Kenwood has the better one from my research last time I mm. did it. It's just way out of my budget. Um, the pasta extruders. Yes. And like, I love fresh pasta. It's yep. one of my favorite things to make. Yep. Especially when I've got eggs or my flatmate brings duck, fresh duck eggs back yep. from, from his school. There's a yep. lady up there that has ducks that won't eat duck eggs. Yeah. So we get all the duck eggs when the duck, when the duck eggs are on. Oh. Um, and so, like, I make basically, you know, rough hand-cut pasta. That's yeah. what I make all the time. But the the kids love spirals yep. and, and all that sort of stuff. So I'm like, man, if I could have one of those mm. and extrude fresh spirals, oh, that would be to die for. I love – I have pretty much every attachment for the Kenwood machine. I was yeah. very spoiled. And I got them all for Christmas one year. Oh, wow. Um, making pasta with the pasta attachment that – hooks onto the Kenwood yeah, chef yeah. it's brilliant like you just bang 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 you could cater for the whole neighbourhood in like 20 minutes well, it's incredible I've got my pasta machine was I think it was 10 years old when it was donated to me and I've had it for 15 years yep it's a lot of work to wind <laughs> these days you won't know yourself it's and amazing and so yeah and like when it was just two of us you know yep. winding out a bit of pasta no yep. worries but now that there's seven and the boys love pasta so yep. like they get a full full whack share yep. of, of pasta yeah it's getting a bit of well these the kitchen machines like the Kenwood um, like I have the mincer for the Kenwood yep. it is ten times better than the KitchenAid mincer uh, okay wrong <laughs> like, well, um, you turn me yeah oh. no the, the KitchenAid mincer I have done hamburgers you know the Heston style one where you line up all the grains of meat and you wrap yep. them up with the salt um you know, stuffed sausages, and it just keeps going. Like, there's you don't have to stop and clean it out. And so it, because it works so quickly, you're not overheating the meat, so you're not kind of, like, ruining the proteins and yeah. the fats aren't separating out, and it's brilliant. And then I had to use the other brand's one, <laughs> like, not that long ago. It was horrible. Yeah, there's nothing. I used to do it all, was the, plastic. all the sausage trials <laughs> at work, and we had a good mincer. And then someone came in and was desperate for a little benchtop mincer. And we're like, well, the only one we've got is the one we use for our trials. And they're like, well, what? I'll take it. And so they took that one. And so we got another one in. But in the intervening time, 
we changed suppliers or yep. the supplier had changed brands or whatever and I got this other one in and it was just so much hard work you had to cut the trim so small yeah. you couldn't have the you couldn't have the slightest bit of sinew, sinew. because it had just jammed the, yep. the the cutting blades up and so I ended up going I'm not doing trials at work anymore yeah. I'd, I'd go down to a butcher shop and, and use their, their yeah. proper ones that just you know chew through anything no so. I've never been able to fault my I've got the spice mills oh. I've got everything wow. well the cheesy, <laughs> cheesy podcast is pivoting and is now angling for a Kenwood sponsorship <laughs> and actually Kenwood now have what they call the thermo chef and it's oh, the yeah. same as a kitchen machine yeah. but there's a little induction plate underneath the bowl so you can do like all your you know like your hot sauces like hollandaises and yeah, all that right. sort of thing it just keeps whisking. You just pour in the butter. There's no kind of wrapped tea towel around a okay, so bowl anymore. I have never made hollandaise that way, right? Yep. This is the way I make hollandaise. And I've always made it. So um, I do, in a bowl, yep. I do my egg yolks, yep. my mustard. If I'm being fancy, I'll do the white wine reduction yep. peppercorn thing. But mostly it's just a squeeze of lime yep. juice. Uh, a dash of warm water. Yep. And I'll whisk all that up. Yep. And then I melt my butter, so it's really, really, really hot. Yep. And then I pour it in and whisk it. Yep. That's it. I've never split yeah, a Yeah, I mean, there's nothing, like, there's nothing so, complex to it, but this is, so like... So why is every single recipe I read about bowls over double boilers and keeping it warm and... Look, it, do I get a better product from making it that way than making it my way? No. Okay, it's, I'll it's, keep making it's it tradition. my way then. Like, I think this is sometimes where people get a bit confused as well as to what is the best way and what is just the traditional way. Yeah. And chef, the chef trade is a very traditional trade. Like, we yeah. do focus on classic techniques and things like that. So to go and bastardise a technique for a classic sauce like a hollandaise, people are in, you know... In the kitchen will be up in arms, but we all have our sneaky little ways of doing something that's a little well, bit like easier. Pe- people that come and have breakfast at my place, A, aren't paying for it, and B, you know, like we, we quite often have people come and help us do hmm. something on the farm and then yep. they get fed, you know, or we have a few drinks and they stay for breakfast the next morning. So, you know, if I've got to make hollandaise for 12 people, there's no way I'm going to sit there well A I've probably got 15 different things on the go in this little tiny kitchen trying yeah. to get everyone out breakfast yep. and I just never fail I never have the, I, I split the first hollandaise I made the yep. very very first one trying to do it the classic way yep. and I can't remember where I read that way and I tried it that way and it worked and I've never done it any other way since I think as long as you get the same result at the end yeah. it doesn't matter how you get there the big thing I, I didn't do when I first started was add that little bit of water, yeah. which makes it sort of fluffier, yeah. creamier. Yeah. Same with my mayonnaise. I never used to add that sort of couple of tablespoons of yeah. water into my mayonnaise. And now I do, and I think it's it's much, much better. And this is why I love kind of getting outside the kitchen as well and hearing how people do things. Because yeah. once you taught the classical way or the traditional way, you kind of go, right, this is how it is. Yeah. But this is how beautiful, inventive, creative things happen. Well, well speaking of your hatred of the stem blender, um, <laughs> one of the, the favourite, like in playing around with your mozzarella, yeah. I do that with mayonnaise for chips. So, like, you know, if I've got rock, heaps of rocket yep. or heaps of basil or, um, like, I've got some seaweed from home once yep. and threw that in. Um, so, like, I'll add everything in. So, I just put 
the, the egg yolk, the mustard, the water, the garlic, mm-hmm. um, the vegetable oil, yep. just all in and put the stem blender at the bottom and then yep. just slowly pull it up. Yep. And because it's so powerful, you can throw like whatever flavoring you want yeah. in there and it just, it just beautifully emulsifies it. I just so, hate stick blenders. Yeah. <laughs> I, it's, it's one of those things I, I just couldn't... As soon as one dies, and I kill, I reckon I kill one a year, just just burn the motor out because I buy cheap yeah. ones like yep. instead of a like a good commercial one. Yeah. Yeah, it's like next day go to the good guys and get another one. <laughs> come on, Kenwood. <laughs> yeah, come on. Where's that Kenwood sponsorship? All right, Danielle. Thank you very much. That was good fun. Thank you. Um... When, what dates do you know? What dates, Julie, for... It's the 11th of July. It kicks off. All right. Yeah. So we will start plugging that now. 11th of July. Have you got any spots left though, Julie? Yes. How many? Still open. Oh, okay. Well, get in. Ring ring scrumptious reads and get in because it'll be good fun. The interest has been huge. Yeah. Um, we have taken a few names down, but we haven't booked anyone yet, so they all will open now. Yeah, well, yeah. I would imagine that it'll go quickly. So I hope so. It'll re- be fun. Register your interest. All right. Anything else you want to plug? <laughs> no. No? Okay. Bucci! Come and see me at Bucci. <laughs> Thanks, Danielle. Thanks. <laughs>